Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at three scenes in Luke chapter 7 that are, that are connected together in, uh, in various ways. Uh, overall, let me, let me say up front, I, I, before we read, so that hopefully you can be looking for some of these things as we're reading through the passage, much of what you have in the, uh, this section of, uh, of Luke, we're going to do verses uh, 1 through 23. Much, much of what you have in Luke 7, 1 through 23 deals with uh, the nature or the identity of Jesus specifically as it relates to the exercise of his power and authority. Right, so there, there are three scenes, one with a centurion, one with a widow who has just lost her son, and then the last one that we're going to look at is a scene with John the Baptist. One of the ways that you could, that you could read through this passage <clears throat> is that you could read through this passage and you could consider the different ways that people respond to or react to the demonstration of Christ's power and authority. Another way that you could read through this passage, which is what we're going to try to do today, is to say what maybe one of the things that we want to do before we even look and consider how people respond to the power and authority of Christ is just to say, what does this actually say about Christ himself? about this Savior that is ours who exercises his power and authority on behalf of his people, what can we learn about Jesus Christ in the way that he interacts with these people in these three scenes? So, confidence, comfort, and confusion in Christ's power. Follow along with me as I read. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, notice, has not met Jesus, has not seen Jesus, he heard about Jesus. He sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him. So they're, they're begging Jesus, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. 
scene two. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. By the way, probably not a coffin in the way that we think. It may have actually been something as simple as a plank that they were carrying the body out on to be put into the ground, um, but not a closed uh, coffin casket sort of thing. So when he came up, he touched the coffin, verse 14, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Here's the third scene. The disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, reported to him about all these things, these things that we've just read about. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, or we might say, in that very moment... He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, the greatest gift that you can give us is to see your son more clearly, not in the way that we would have him appear, but in the way that he truly is. And so we ask that as we consider this revelation of Jesus Christ in this account of his earthly ministry, that you would give us the ability to think clearly, to meditate long and hard, and to be moved with joy and excitement over this Savior that we can call ours, whom you have given to us. Father, may your Spirit be at work to comfort those who are distressed, to disturb those who are far more comfortable than they ought to be, but ultimately, Father, may your spirit do your perfect work in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So confidence, comfort, and confusion as it relates to Christ's power. We're going to just walk through, take, th take these scenes, these three scenes, one at a time, and make some, uh, what seem to be some unique observations. Each scene could sort of stand on its own, but they, they seem to be... Um, or Luke would intend for us to read them together. 
I think the, one of the ways that we know that this ought to be read together is because when you get to the scene with John the Baptist in verse 18, we read that the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. So that the, the Q&A that goes, that goes on between John the Baptist and Jesus as John sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question and then Jesus sends an answer back, that last scene has to be read in the light of the two miracles that Jesus has performed previously in verses 1 through 17. So in, for that reason then, I think we need to take all three of these, the centurion, the widow, and John the Baptist, as being three distinct scenes, but that all tie together to give us sort of a fuller picture of the person of Christ. And so here's how we're going to do it. We want to see three things about Jesus in this section. Number one, in the scene with the centurion, we want to see that Jesus acts on the faith of unworthy people. Jesus acts on the faith of unworthy people. Number two, in the scene with the widow, we want to see that Jesus acts with compassion for suffering people. And number three, in the scene with John the Baptist, we want to see that Jesus affirms the faith of bewildered people. So number one, Jesus acts on the faith of unworthy people. Number two, Jesus acts with compassion for suffering people. And number three, Jesus affirms the faith of bewildered people. So start with the first scene with the centurion in verses 1 through 10. A centurion slave, we're told in verse 2, was sick and about to die. And when this centurion hears about Jesus, probably hears that Jesus has, has performed miracles already, probably hears something about his teaching, this, the, the news that's beginning to, to go around, filter through the countryside about Jesus. He hears about this traveling teacher or prophet, this miracle worker, and presumably because nothing else has been able to heal or resolve this health issue for his servant, he sends word to Jesus asking Jesus to do for him what no one else has been able to do, which is to heal his chief servant. Now, it's important to recognize at least a couple things that, that play into the dynamic here of this, this exchange between Jesus and the messengers that are being sent. One, the fact that we know that this man was a centurion, we, we know that he was a Roman. Right? Because he's a Roman, we can say a couple more things about him. Number one, for all intents and purposes, this man is a pagan. Right? So even when we read, when these Jewish elders come and they say, he's worthy for you to grant this request because he, he built our synagogue for us. Right? In and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that this centurion is someone who himself loves or worships the God of Israel. It, it could be, but we have no indication here that he's a proselyte to the Jewish faith. Probably what we have going on here is that just like you have all kinds of different people in government work or in the military or in universities or something like that, this is one of the better kinds of people that you would bump into. Right? Rather than lording it over or making life miserable for the Jewish people, he's actually kind and generous to them. 
He worships dozens of gods, and so why shouldn't they be able to worship their god? Eh, to the extent that they have a real god that they worship, why wouldn't it be a bad idea for me to curry some favor with their god and doing something nice for them so that I've got his favor along with the favor of all the other gods that I worship? Do you see? So this, is, this, is not, it, this centurion is not a believer in the sense of the way that we talk about that today. For all intents and purposes, he probably is a pagan, but a pagan who has been persuaded that there's something different about Jesus. And of course, along with that, not only is this man a pagan, he is not devout or he is not in the true faith as he ought to be. Precisely because he is a Roman centurion, if you are a hardliner, ultra-conservative in the Jewish people at this day, you would have viewed this man as the root of all the problems that concern your people. He represents the face of modern evil in the world, the Roman Empire. It's the Romans who have kept us from owning our land. It's the Romans who oppress us. It's the Romans who tax us. It's the Romans who take our money and use it for idolatrous worship. This man has no business asking Jesus to do anything for him. And you see that by virtue of the fact that when he needs something from Jesus, he doesn't go himself. He sends Jewish elders to Jesus. He's not convinced, apparently, that Jesus will grant the request simply on his asking, but that maybe Jesus will need some persuading. And so he sends Jewish brothers to speak on his behalf. And then the Jewish brothers, the elders, the, these respected men of the city where this centurion lives, notice they come, and in verse 4 and 5, they have to make an appeal for Jesus to do this act for him, to heal the servant. Because even the Jewish elders feel that under normal circumstances, no self-respecting Jewish religious leader or rabbi would give the time of day to this centurion's request. Oh, no, no, no. He's not like the other centurions. He's not like the other Romans. This is a good guy. He deserves it. He's worthy of you to grant him his request. That's the key word. He's worthy. Because when Jesus starts to go to find this centurion at his home and to heal the servant, at some point in time in Jesus' journey, he sends another group of messengers, some friends. Maybe these are fellow Romans or Gentiles. We don't really know. But he sends some other friends, and he sends a new message, and he says, Jesus, don't, don't bother coming. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come to me and to even be in my house. I don't even consider myself worthy to go to you to ask the question. That's why I sent others in my stead. Do you hear the contrast? The appeal on the part of the Jewish elders for the centurion was, he is worthy for you to do this act of kindness for him. The centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to do any of this. That's why I don't even show my face. But this creates something of a problem. Because if Jesus is not going to come and is not going to meet with the centurion's servant, how is he going to heal him? And this is where 
the unworthy pagan says something that shocks the sensibilities of the bystanders and even, if we can say it this way, surprises Jesus himself. He says, in essence, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy to come to you. But my worth is no obstacle to you accomplishing this act. All you have to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, this has not happened. Every act of healing that Jesus has done, he has been physically present to lay eyes on someone or to lay hands on someone. So this pagan is asking Jesus to do something that, for, that at least in Luke's account, Jesus has not done. This is, this is a request on the part of this godless man for Jesus to do for him an unworthy person something that he has not done even for his own brothers in the Jewish nation. How does Jesus respond? Does he say to the messengers who came, would you go back to the centurion? Go back to Sam. I, we'll just say his name is Sam. Go back to Sam and tell him he doesn't need to grovel like this. Tell him not to be so hard on himself. He's not that bad of a guy. He's okay. I'm going to come. I'm going to do him this favor. He did something nice for my people. Now I'm going to do something nice for him. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus does not even question the statement that the centurion makes that he is not worthy to be in Jesus' presence. That almost seems to be a given as far as Jesus is concerned. What Jesus responds to is not the statement concerning the relative worth or unworth of the centurion and his request. What Jesus responds to, what draws his attention, is the faith that's being exercised by this unworthy man. Jesus is not going to do this work. He's not going to exercise his power and his authority for this centurion or for this centurion slave because this man deserves it. He's going to do it simply because he asked for Jesus to do it. Do you consider that when you approach Jesus in prayer, when you call out to your merciful and sympathetic high priest, how do you engage him? How do you plead with him? How do you ask him to help you, to save you, to deliver you? Do you hold up in front of him your volunteer work? Do you hold up to him your little chart? of your devotional readings for the week? I promised to read through the Bible in a year. Look, I'm three-quarters of the way. Do you show them your, your financial statement? Look at how much I've given to the church. 
Does that impress Christ at all? If you think it does, it doesn't. You and I are not worthy for Jesus to do anything that we ask Him to do. But He does it anyway if we simply ask. Christian, listen to me. If you are ever in a position to speak with someone, to encourage someone, to try to lead someone to Christ who is outside of the faith, perhaps God has brought them kindly in His grace and mercy to some sort of a crisis in their life, or He has begun to lay bare their sin and their depravity, their need for a Savior. Don't please, I'm begging you, Please do not tell them that Jesus will save them because they're not as bad as all that. They are. We are. That bad and worse. Don't say, don't think to someone or to yourself, I'm worth this favor or that request because of what I've done here or what I've done there. You're not. But say, in line with the faith of this centurion, it is not because I am worthy that Christ can do this, but it is for the sheer glory and demonstration of His power and His grace that He would do this for me. You consider also, when you read in this passage, you know, the, in the first scene, another interesting thing about this scene is that we're told in the very beginning that this centurion, in verse 3, he hears about Jesus, right? Has not seen Jesus, has not met Jesus. And then when you get to the end of the scene, in verse, by the time you get to verse 10... There's no record that Jesus ever goes to the centurion's house and actually meets him. He just simply sends the messengers back, and they find that the servant has been healed. There's, in other words, there's no indication in this account of this miracle that the centurion ever meets Jesus. That he ever sees him with his eyes that he ever hears the sound of his voice. This ought to encourage us in our praying. Isn't one of the things that we struggle with the most in prayer, one of the things that we struggle with, the fact that because we are embodied creatures, because we judge our lives and discern so much by what we can see and hear and taste and touch and smell, that prayer just seems oftentimes just sort of fanciful or optimistic, wishful thinking, imaginative at best. Let 
Distance is no obstacle to Christ answering your requests. You know that, right? Whether or not you see him, it makes no difference in whether or not he's able to answer your pleading to him. He sees you. Whether or not you hear Christ interceding for you at the Father's right hand makes no difference. He does it still. That should be motivation and encouragement. This is your Savior. This is one that you can call on and you can ask to do miraculous things for you. And He will do it simply because He loves you. and Because He rewards the simple, humble faith of unworthy people who know who it is that can heal them when they have reached the end of all their resources. Jesus responds. He answers the faith of unworthy people. Number two, Jesus acts with compassion for suffering people. Now, there's something of a progression that seems to be going on here, or perhaps we could observe a progression, in going from scene one to scene two. In scene one, if you look back at verse two, we're told that the centurion slave was sick and about to die, near death. In scene 2, with the widow's son, in verses 11 through 17, what is the situation? Dead. So, we're, we're, we're moving from lesser to greater in one sense. It's one thing for Jesus to heal someone who is near death. What will he do for someone who is dead? But then here's the other thing that is different about scene two. Another way in which this ratchets up or intensifies our love and our joy at seeing Jesus in action. In the first scene, not only do you have someone who is near death, and now we're moving to someone who has already died... In scene one, you have someone who makes a formal request of Jesus. In scene two, with the widow, as she is walking out with the funeral procession from the city, with her dead son, her life is over. She has no husband. She only had one son. She now is going to be left destitute. Where is the formal request? Does she ask Jesus to raise her son? No, you you don't even know if she even recognizes that Jesus is coming or if she even saw another group of people approaching the funeral procession as they're moving out. Does she even know who Jesus is? Whether she knows who Jesus is or not, whether she sees Jesus coming, the point is, she says absolutely nothing to Jesus. And yet Jesus exercises his power and authority for her. Why does he do it if she doesn't even ask? 
The text tells us, why does he do it? Pure, simple compassion. He sees a woman in sorrow and he moves to help her. He sees grief and he comes to comfort. Not because he is asked to Not because even there has been an exercise of anyone's faith in this funeral procession. He moves simply because his heart has been stirred by the weakness and the sorrow that he sees in front of him. Infinite power. He can heal with a word. At a distance, sight unseen, he can say it and it happens. Infinite power and infinite mercy. What a Savior. Have you ever stopped to think about the times in your life in which you could identify with this kind of mercy? This kind of power and authority being exercised by your Savior on your behalf as a simple but dramatic demonstration of Christ's affection and love and compassion and mercy to you. How many of us in this room could look back on our lives and say, Before I even knew the trouble that I was heading into, he intervened. He cut off that relationship. He steered me away from this job. He delayed my plans. He set me here instead of there. Or how many of us in this room can say that even in deep moments of grief and sorrow, when we don't have our spiritual bearings enough to even call out to the Lord, that even in the depth of our grief when we are confused and utterly lost, we look up and find Jesus. It's hard not to think, of course, in this holiday season, about the fact that there are probably some of you in this room who are in something like this situation yourself. This may have been your first Christmas or your first New Year's without your spouse or your parent or your sister or brother or close friend. Or 
It may be the second or third or fifth or tenth or twentieth. I don't know. And just offer a word of encouragement to you to say that if Christ is your Savior, your Savior is so kind and compassionate to you that even when you have not thought to call to him, he is still coming to you. He exercises his power and his authority for unworthy people simply for the asking in faith. He exercises his power and authority purely as an act of compassion and mercy for this widow. And then number three. Rather than an act of power and authority for John the Baptist, we have what we might not expect— which is a word of affirmation for John. Look at verses 18 through 23. I'm going to read them again. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, these things that just happened, the healing of the centurion's slave, the raising of the widow's son. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Why does John ask that? Of all the people to ask a question like this, why would John ask it? John is the one who was sent to get everyone else ready for the coming of the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, expecting for. If anyone knows who Jesus is and whether or not he's the expected one, it's John the Baptist. Why does John ask that question? Why does John ask it now? Notice it's not that there's been a drought of miraculous work that Jesus has been doing. It's in a flurry of miraculous activity that comes back to John, and John then decides at that moment to say, are you the expected one, or should we be looking somewhere else? The reason that he asked this question, we're told this in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, you don't need to turn there, Matthew tells us that when John asks this question, he's in prison. He's been arrested because he has been preaching about the righteousness of God, about the coming of the kingdom, calling people to repent of their sin. And part of that preaching, part of that calling of repentance, is to speak to a king to say, your marriage to this woman is unlawful. And he was thrown in prison for it. That's where he is. If Jesus has all of this power and authority, why is John the Baptist... His cousin, why is he languishing in prison?
you did something for a pagan over here. You can't do something for me? You did something for this widow. She didn't even ask for anything. You can't do something for me? Right? Do you, do you see what's, what's going on here? The problem here with John the Baptist seems to be not that he doubts Jesus' power and authority. He's not calling into question whether or not Jesus has actually done these things. It's precisely because Jesus has done these things that he asks this question. He's wondering whether or not his faith or his trust has been misplaced in placing it on Jesus. Because for John... Jesus is not exercising his power and authority the way that he thought he would. You ever been there? You ever prayed expectantly, asking for God to do something that seems on a much smaller scale than the request that was made by the centurion? And there seems to be no response. God doesn't seem to exercise his power to your benefit or to your advantage in the way that you're asking him to do. You ever look around and you see, we'll just keep it within the faith. You see other Christian brothers and sisters who it just seems like every time you turn around, God is doing something new and different and unique and wonderful and dynamic for them. Here I am, rotting away, pleading, asking for you to do something and to intervene. Where is my miracle? You exercise compassion for the widow. You can't have a little compassion for me. Just get me out of prison. Or even if you keep me in prison, can you give a little bit more evidence? Can you, can you show us what we've been expecting you to do? There are a lot of evil, wicked people that are still running rampant out here that seem to have their way of the world. Their will seems to rule supreme. Can you at least do something about that? Do something here. And how does Jesus respond? It's stunning, we ought to say this up front, that when messengers come to Jesus to ask this question to him, that Jesus does not say to the messengers, to John's disciples, go back to John and give him this rebuke. Who is he to question me? Rather, verse 22, Jesus says, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Two things I think that Jesus is saying here in response to John. John, number one, 
everything that I am doing right now and have done is itself sufficient evidence that I am the expected one. You have placed your trust in the right person. And number two, that last line in verse 23, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That, that word there for offense, when you find it in the New Testament, most, most often, more often than not, it's, it's actually translated in our English as something like who does not stumble or who does not fall away. So it's not merely the idea that your feelings are hurt, although that could be part of it. It's not merely that you're disappointed, although that certainly can be part of what John's experiencing. But the idea is, blessed is he who does not stumble, who does not fall away, who does not abandon me, who does not turn his back on me when I don't meet their expectations. What are you going to do when you pray fervently day after day, night after night, and you receive no answer to that prayer? Are you going to leave? Are you going to go? What are you going to do when you're, inter- when you're interceding, when you're petitioning God on behalf of someone else even? And that miracle doesn't happen for them. Healing doesn't come. What are you going to do when you're praying for the salvation of a family member or a close friend or a co-worker? And it just seems like every day they continue to drift and get further and further away. And there's no sign or any indication that God is doing any work on their heart and mind at all. Are you going to hang it all up? Or are you going to hear the words of Christ coming to you saying, All that I have done is sufficient cause for you to continue to trust me. Are you going to look to the cross? Are you going to look to the resurrection and to the ascension? And are you going to say and agree with Jesus That even when Jesus does not act the way that I hoped he would act, even when Christ does not answer in the way that I want him to answer, nevertheless, nevertheless, I trust that in the end, when everything is said and done, that the blessing that is coming to me will make this confusion and this delay more than worth it. People, if Christ actually did die on the cross for our sins, we need not wonder if he loves us. If Christ really was raised from the dead, we need not wonder if his power is sufficient. And if Christ 
walk through suffering for our sake to enter into glory, we can say with confidence that we will find that same blessing when all of our days of suffering and longing and questioning and confusion, there's coming a day when all of that will be over and when we will enter into the glory that is waiting for us with Jesus Christ. And we will hear him say, Blessed are you for not falling away. Let's pray. merciful and sympathetic high priest we should never grow tired of praising you for the exercise of your power and authority on our behalf you have saved undeserving unworthy sinners and reconciled us to our God you Jesus have given us life you have interceded for us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine, countless ways. Every moment of our day, you hold us together and keep us in our faith. Would you help us to see and to recognize that and to respond with joy and gratitude to your power working in us and through us? And Jesus, would you continue to be patient and sympathetic to us when we wrestle with our doubts and our confusion, when we call but feel as if no one is hearing or no one is answering? Keep us pleading to you. Help us to persevere in our faith, in the way that we pray, in the way that we press on, in the way that we endure. And Father, would you also give us, as we look at the life of Christ, a settled assurance and confidence that there is coming a day when all of this struggle, all of this trial will be worth it, that we ourselves will enter into the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we'll know that all of it has been worth it. Comfort us, strengthen us, we ask. 